Archimedes was and remains the most famous person ever from Syracuse, Sicily. He belonged to the prosperous and sophisticated culture which the dominantly Greek population had built in the east of the island. And the civilization of the whole of ancient Sicily and South Italy was called by the Romans Magna Graecia or Great Greece. And the cities of Magna Graecia began to be annexed from being Greek and independent, um, or on the other side of the island, Carthaginian, from uh, being annexed by the Roman Republic from 327 BCE. And most of Sicily was conquered by 272. But Syracuse, a large and magnificent kingdom, the size of Athens and a major player in the politics of the Mediterranean world throughout antiquity, succeeded in staying independent until 212. And this was because its kings were allies of Rome in the face of the constant threat from Carthage. Archimedes was born into this free and vibrant port city in about 287 BCE, and as far as we know, lived there most of his life, or all of his life. When he was about 12, the formidable Hiero II came to the throne, and there followed more than a half a century of peace in the city, despite the momentous power struggles going on as the Romans clashed with the Carthaginians and Greeks beyond Syracuse's borders. And Hero was a very remarkable leader who encouraged the arts and sciences and massively expanded the ancient theatre where plays are still performed today. His background, Archimedes' background, enabled him to fulfil his huge inborn intellectual talents to the full. His father was an astronomer named Phidias, and he was probably sent as a young man to Alexandria, home of the famous library, where he seems to have become very close friends with, um, and correspondents with the great geographer and astronomer Eratosthenes, who was later to become chief librarian. Archimedes recorded his proofs and calculations as letters written in the native Doric Greek of Syracuse and sent them to other scholars, including Eratosthenes. But Archimedes was also related to the Syracusan royal family as well, and a hero as a, a military star in charge of a large army and a huge fleet encouraged him to design machines for use in warfare. And as so often in the history of technology, it's actually been war that's prompted some of the big inventions. Now, to understand Archimedes' commitment to science, let us begin at the end of his life with his brutal death in 212 at the hands of the Romans. Hiero's long and peaceful reign came to an end when he died in 215, and he was succeeded by his 15-year-old grandson, Hieronymus, who, under pressure from older advisers, stupidly transferred his allegiance from Rome to Carthage which was scoring at the time huge successes under its rising star, Hannibal. The Romans had no choice then but to besiege Syracuse. The city resisted the siege for more than two years, helped by Archimedes' war machines. But it was betrayed from inside and captured by the Romans under Marcus Claudius Marcellus in 212 during the Second Punic War. And Plutarch tells us that Archimedes was intensely pondering a mathematical diagram drawn in the dust 
when the city fell. A Roman soldier commanded him to come and meet General Marcellus, but Archimedes refused, saying he needed to complete his solution to the problem. <laughs> the furious soldier killed him with his sword, and Archimedes' last words are said to have been, do not disturb my circles. He seems to be more interested in protecting his diagram than protecting his life. His intellectual commitment and pride in his life's work are also suggested by his instruction that his tomb must be topped with a sculpture representing his favourite mathematical breakthrough. And this was his proof that in a sphere and a cylinder of the same height and the same diameter, the volume and surface area of the sphere are two-thirds that of the cylinder, including its bases. So this was put on his tomb, this statue. But most Romans were not at all interested in pure mathematics. Under their rule, his tomb was neglected and fell into disrepair. But in 75 BCE, so 137 years later, Cicero held the office of Quistor in Italy. He made inquiries and at length discovered Archimedes' tomb near the Agrigentine Gate, but it was crumbling and overgrown. Cicero tells us this himself in his Tusculan Disputations. He had it cleaned up and said, amongst the Greeks, geometry was held in the highest honour. Nothing was more glorious than mathematics, but we Romans have limited the uselessness of this art to measuring and calculating. This is why I'm a Hellenist, not a Romanist. The tomb disappeared again and has never been found. I went on my own personal search three years ago when asked to lecture in the big theatre. Couldn't find it. It was probably in the large Hellenistic necropolis to the west of the city. But painters, several painters, have reimagined Cicero's discovery of it for us. Now, Archimedes was a world-changing mathematician as well as a physicist, engineer and inventor. He also foreshadowed modern calculus, arrived at a very close approximation of pi and proved the theorem um, allowing the calculation of the area under a parabola. And our understanding of the processes by which he arrived at his mathematical conclusions has been much illuminated by the painstaking decipherment of what is known as the Archimedes palimpsest. This is a very exciting parchment codex. It's International Day of the Book from 10th century Byzantium, which had been overwritten because the parchment was so expensive with a Christian treatise in the late 13th century. There it is. And this palimpsest has had its own extraordinary adventures. I want someone to do the movie. Some of the underlying Archimedes Greek text was published in 1915, but then the palimpsest went missing from Istanbul during the Greco-Turkish exchange of populations, what the Greeks call the catastrophe in 1922. And it got into the hands of a shady French businessman <laughs> named Marie-Louis Sirier, who kept it in a cellar where it was damaged by moisture and mould. And while in his possession, it was further wrecked by a forger that he seems to have hired who added gold plate portraits to increase its value. Now, Syrie died in 1956. His daughter, Anne, and I really wanted to find a photograph of her for you, but I failed, made a fortune out of the palimpsest. Well, she, wants her, she wanted to make a fortune out of the palimpsest, and she asked Christie's to auction it in 1998. 
And this led to a very dramatic ownership case in the New York Federal Court. The Greek Orthodox Patriarchate of Jerusalem claimed ownership because it had been stolen from a, uh, a monastery in Istanbul. But the judge decided in favour of Christie's and the palimpsest was bought by a mysterious private American, a Mr B, probably Jeff Bezos, for $2 million. Fortunately, he seems to have handed it over completely voluntarily to the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore, where in an astonishing feat of conservation and imaging, using ultraviolet and infrared light and x-rays, the full Archimedean text was deciphered between 1998 and 2008. And this has given us our sole known Greek copy of three treatises, the Stomachion, the Method of Mechanical Theorems, and on floating bodies. The first one, which should really be called the Ostomachion, or, or Battle of the Bones, explores the mathematical properties of 14 pieces that are produced when a square is dissected into 14 polygonal pieces. Archimedes asked, how many ways can these 14 pieces be recombined to make the square again? And the answer, apparently, is 17,152. Um, but fascinatingly, this was the design of a popular ancient board game from before Archimedes' time, in which players rearranged the pieces to create non-square objects, such as an elephant. Archimedes' method of mechanical theorems, however, contains the first known explicit use of infinitesimals. And that relied on the law of the lever, to which we shall return. You can actually buy this. I found one on Amazon if you've got a grandchild who might like to know. God, that's me being very uh, uh, presumptuous about your ages. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you have a sister. <laughs> okay, Eureka. The third newly found Greek treatise on floating bodies the first known work in world history on hydrostatics, examines the positions that various solids assume when floating in a fluid, according to their form and their variation in their specific gravities. But it also brings us on to the discovery for which Archimedes is most famous and for which he's entered the English language, the one that he made in his bath. This newly discovered treatise gives us the full full statement of the fundamental law of physics central to fluid mechanics known as the Archimedes principle. The upward buoyant force exerted on a body immersed in fluid, whether fully or partially submerged, is equal to the weight of the fluid that the body displaces. And this principle has had thousands of practical applications, most obviously in the worlds of submarine engineering shipbuilding and aviation. Now, the fullest account we have of this momentous discovery comes from the Roman architect Vitruvius's wonderful treatise on architecture. Hero had vowed to bestow a gold crown in a temple to thank the gods for his military successes. He negotiated a fixed price with the contractor, weighed out a precise amount of gold, and an exquisite gold crown was made. But an accusation was made that some of the gold had been taken away and the weight made up with silver. 
So Hiero obviously asked his clever relative Archimedes for advice. Archimedes, like many of us, did some of his best thinking in the bath. He ran one. He got into it. He noticed that the more the, his body was submerged, the more the water ran out over the edge of the tub. According to uh, the ancient sources, he left out of his tub, ran home naked. He, the bath wasn't in his house. Shouting, Eureka, Eureka, I found it, I found it. And you can still say that in modern Greek, Dovrika, Dovrika. He then made two masses of the same weight as the crown, one of gold, the other of silver. He filled a large vessel with water to the brim, dropped the mass of silver into it and measured the displaced water. He repeated the exercise with the gold mass and discovered that less water was displaced, an amount corresponding to the lesser bulk of the mass of gold relative to a silver mass of the same weight. And then he dropped in the actual crown. And since more water was lost than in the case of the gold mass, he could deduce that the gold of the crown had indeed been diluted with silver. I've so much enjoyed the picture research for this lecture. <laughs> this is a statue of Archimedes in a bathtub um, at Israel's National Museum of Science. And this is uh, something you can buy to lower yourself and lift yourself out of your bath repeatedly doing Archimedes experiment time after time. <laughs> and it's the brand name. Just Google and Archimedes, that's what comes up. Okay, give me a place to stand on and I will move the earth. So beside don't disturb my circles and Eureka, a third often repeated saying is attributed to Archimedes. Give me a place to stand on and I will move the earth. Now this resonant statement of confidence has inspired many repurposings, especially amongst revolutionary politicians. British radical, radical Democrat Tom Paine found out about Archimedes because Tom Paine was himself an engineer who designed the Wearmouth Iron Bridge. Um, but he suggested that the leverage statement could be applied politically. In Rights of Man, Paine quotes a rousing statement saying it can be applied to reason and liberty. If we but had a place to stand on with those, we might raise the world. So reason and liberty would become your lever. But what Archimedes seems to have said, with more scientific precision, is give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and I shall move the world. And he was right. You can indeed lift enormous weights with a beam if it's long and strong enough, and you've worked out exactly where to put the fulcrum. Now, Archimedes didn't invent the lever, which in simple form was used millennia earlier in Mesopotamia and Egypt. And some of Aristotle's pupils had succeeded in describing some aspects of the lever. But Archimedes was the first to offer a scientific explanation of how it worked, which allowed much more precise calculation of the length of the levers and positions of the fulcrums in order to lift objects of different weights. And he also designed the block and tackle pulley systems allowing sailor to use the principle of leverage to lift objects that would otherwise have been too heavy to move. Archimedes' screw. Along with the bulk of the displaced bathwater and the lever, Archimedes' most famous discovery must certainly be his screw pump. 
This machine consisted of a revolving screw-shaped blade inside a cylinder. It was turned by hand. And one of its most important applications was for transferring water from a low-lying body of water into irrigation channels, canals, higher up. Um, that's part of a, a model of it uh, made, uh, found in the Nile Delta, showing it being used in the Nile Delta only a couple of centuries after him. It's in the British Museum. Now, the Sicilian historian Diodorus, he really liked Archimedes as a fellow Sicilian. Writing in the first century BCE, notes that an entire island in the delta of the Nile is easily irrigated by a device invented by his compatriot Archimedes. Um, and he says it's called a cochleas, which is the word for a snail with a long spiral shell, which seems to be what gave Archimedes the idea. And his screw is still being used in the Nile Delta today. And it is once again Vitruvius, the architect, who provides us with a detailed description of an ancient Archimedean screw. It began with a tree trunk shaped into a cylindrical core with a length 16 times its diameter. Eight helical blades were attached to it by nailing flexible willow twigs up to a height equal to the radius of the core. Then an outer cylinder was attached and pitch coating applied to make it watertight. And then the rigid screw was then mounted so it could be rotated and tilted in the direction of the hypotenuse of a three to four to five triangle. And the Archimedes screw is still in use today for pumping liquids, water in treatment plants, and granulated solids such as coal and grain. And there's a water treatment plant in Tennessee. It's also, in Britain, recently been adopted as one of the most environmentally friendly ways of moving water around. The Archimedes screw turbine, or AST, has been described as fish-friendly, based on the magnitude of observed impacts, such as low rates of direct damage and mortality in fish due to blade strike, and in terms of its long-term impacts. It alters fish behaviour far less. But the mechanism also had a very important role to play in the development of the modern ship. Trip to Bristol coming up. Now, SS Archimedes was a steamship built in Britain in 1839. She was the world's first steamship to be driven by a screw propeller. The ship affected all subsequent ship development and encouraged the adoption of screw propulsion by the Royal Navy, as well as by commercial shipping companies. And the ship was loaned, SS Archimedes, was loaned to the Great Western Steamship Company, which was in the process of constructing the world's largest steamship, the SS Great Britain. Some of my best friends got married on that. They live in Bristol. You can hire it to get married. Um, Great Western's principal engineer, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, tested SS Archimedes with a variety of different propellers in an attempt to find the most efficient design, and screw propulsion was then adopted as being much lighter in weight and less, much less bulky than a paddle wheel, so saving massively on fuel and releasing more space for cargo. It was also cheaper and more stable. And SS Great Britain became the first iron steamer to cross the Atlantic, 
which she did in 1845 in exactly 14 days. Now, my maritime excursus seems particularly appropriate because the ancient Greeks believed that Archimedes had come up with the idea of the screw pump in response to another demand from Hero II. Athenaeus tells us of the gargantuan ship which Hiero built, called the, guess what, Syracusia. But this sheer size of this caused huge problems. Even the shell was too big to launch with existing technology. So Archimedes invented the windlass. Then the top part of the ship was built to hold no fewer than 20 banks of rowers with three gangways, 30 officers' cabins with room for between four and 30 couches each, on the upper level, this puts any cruise ship you've ever been on into the shade, there was a gymnasium, there were promenades, there were plant and flower beds with inbuilt watering mechanisms, a shrine of Aphrodite, a library, an elegant bathhouse, an aquarium and an art gallery in which you could see the entire Iliad. Archimedes designed and added to the ship a, a weapon which could throw stones or javelins of enormous size automatically but the important invention prompted by the Syracusia was the screw pump. The sheer weight of the ship meant that a huge amount of water leaked into the hull. And with the aid of Archimedes' amazing screw, Athenaeus tells us, the bilge water, even when it became very deep, could easily be pumped out by just one man. So, the claw. Maritime engineering, specifically for naval warfare, prompted Archimedes to invent other further ingenious devices. He improved catapult technology, which already existed, but he improved it considerably. He constructed all manner of defensive machines that could hurl wave after wave of enormous missiles, semi-automatically. But his most famous feat was his invention for use in naval warfare of his claw. During the siege of Syracuse, when the Roman fleet of 60 terrifying quinquirines, those are five rows of uh, uh, oars, was looming in the air of the port. What happened then? Well, huge poles thrust out from the walls over the ships, sunk some by the great weights which they let down from on high upon them. Others they lifted up in the air by an iron hand or beak like a crane's beak. And when they'd drawn them up by the prow and set them on the end of the poop, they plunged them to the bottom of the sea with a great destruction of the soldiers that were aboard them. A ship was frequently lifted up to a great height in the air, a terrifying thing to behold, and rolled to and fro and kept on swinging until, says Athenaeus, the mariners were thrown out when at length it was dashed against the rocks or let fall. General Marcellus was baffled and ordered his remaining ships to retreat to what he thought was a safe distance. And he then resorted to a land assault at dead of night but discovered that Archimedes' machines were protecting the city walls just as effectively. Instantly, a shower of darts and other missile weapons was again cast against them, when stones came tumbling down perpendicularly upon their heads, and as it were, the whole wall seemed to shoot out arrows at them, the Romans retired. And now again, as they were going off, arrows and darts of a longer range inflicted great slaughter, and their ships were driven against one another, while they were themselves not able to retaliate. 
for Archimedes had provided and fixed most of his engines immediately under the wall, so the Romans, seeing that indefinite mischief overwhelmed them from no visible means, began to think they were fighting the gods. Such terror seized on the Romans that if they even saw a tiny bit of rope or a piece of wood, they instantly cried out, there it was again. Archimedes is about to let some more, but then they turned their back and fled. Marcellus was completely frustrated by Archimedes' machines and so had to play the long game, waiting to starve the Syracusans out. And even that didn't work. It was betrayed from inside. The claw was also known as the ship shaker. Its practicality has been much doubted, but the ancient sources are clear that he designed several units of this machine to defend the seaward portion of the Syracuse city wall against amphibious assault. And a television documentary you can find on YouTube called Super Weapons of the Ancient World reconstructed a physical version of the claw and concluded it was a feasible contraption. Mirrors. Now, far more controversial even than that is the feasibility of a weapon some sources say Archimedes devised called the heat ray or burning mirrors. This is first mentioned by the satirical essayist Lucian in the 2nd century CE. He says that Archimedes burned the enemy ships by means of science. The Greek doctor Galen says it was by means of flammable materials. But Apuleius tells us more precisely about Archimedes' work on mirrors, on which Archimedes had apparently written an enormous book we haven't got, a volume ingens asking questions such as these. Why is it that in flat mirrors, all images and objects reflected are shown in precisely their original dimensions, whereas in convex and spherical mirrors, everything is smaller, in concave mirrors, on the other hand, larger than nature? Why, again, and under what circumstances are left and right reversed? Where does one and the same mirror seem now to withdraw the image into its depths, now to extrude it forth to view? And another question he apparently asked in that book was, why do concave mirrors, when held at right angles to the rays of the sun, kindle tinder set opposite them? Then what is the cause of the prismatic colours of the rainbow or the appearance in heaven of two rival images of the sun? Now, the earliest detailed description of the mirror technique for setting fire to ships actually comes from much later in two Byzantine authors of the 12th century CE, Zonaras and Tsetses. But they did both have access to much earlier texts, so we need not be completely sceptical about their reliability as sources. They both claim that they're citing a particular much earlier work, which unfortunately has not survived for us to consult, and it was called The Siege of Syracuse. And it apparently said as follows... When Marcellus had placed the ships about shot off, the old man, Archimedes, constructed a sort of hexagonal mirror. He placed at proper distances from the mirror other smaller mirrors of the same kind, which were moved by means of their hinges and certain plates of metal. And he placed it amid the rays of the sun at noon, both in summer and winter. The rays, being reflected by this, a frightful fiery kindling was excited on the ships, it reduced them to ashes from the distance of a bowshot. Thus the old man baffled Marcellus by means of his inventions. 
Now, in principle, this seems plausible enough. As children, many of us tried to set fire to a small piece of kindling by concentrating the rays of the sun through a magnifying glass on it. Some of us even succeeded. Not me, my brother. <laughs> a small concave parabolic mirror can reflect the sun's rays onto a small point in the same way. And the Byzantine writers suggested Archimedes managed to do this on such a massive scale and with such huge mirrors that he could focus the heat onto ships a bowshot distance. How far is a bowshot? Well, certainly no more than a few hundred feet. To my knowledge, no experimental reconstruction of Archimedes' heat ray mirrors has ever been successful. I would love to be corrected. But the principle is not in doubt. Between 1996 and 1999, the US Department of Energy, with a consortium of utilities and industry, successfully operated a large-scale demonstration solar power tower in the desert near Barstow, California, known as Solar 2, which had a power capacity of 10 megawatts. Solar 2 used hot melted salt to capture and store the sun's heat. Nearly 2,000 mirrors reflected the sun to a tower in the middle of them. It had a large target at the top full of salt which absorbed the heat. And the mirrors were tilted and moved on a computer control, not by hand and hinge, to maximise the sunlight captured. The heat from the salt was transferred to a water boiler on the ground, and this produced steam that drove a turbine generator that created electricity like any power plant. The station entailed a large number of mirrors that reflected the sun to the tower in the centre. So, could Archimedes have focused mirrors like this onto a, a wooden ship rather than onto a target with a tank of salt on top of a tower? And could he have succeeded in setting a ship on fire? And historians of science are divided. This target salt tank could reach temperatures, temperatures higher than 1,000 Fahrenheit, which is way above the auto-ignition point of most wood. But each of the installations, nearly 2,000 mirrors, was huge, 130 square metres. That is more than six metres long and six metres wide. And some scientists doubt that however rich Syracuse was at the time, such a number of enormous mirrors could have been manufactured in the first place. The device is technically feasible, and even the writing about it shows that people had realised it was technically feasible. But did Archimedes really have the resources to create the tools it required? Well, I tend to believe the ancients when others don't. OK, Archimedes and space and time... Several other fascinating inventions are attributed to Archimedes, and you can see reconstructions in the museum dedicated to him, which is near ancient Olympia. It is wonderful. There is a very, very eccentric Greek scientist who has recreated all of uh, the inventions. One was called the odometer, or road measurer, a contraption which could measure, uh, measure the distance travelled by a vehicle. And perhaps it was used by ancient road transport providers to help them calculate how much to charge their passengers as taxi drivers use their taximeters today. 
He may also have invented an adaptation of the hodometer which could be attached to a ship to measure distance sailed. And yet again, our account comes in the Roman architect Vitruvius. The wheels of the chariot are made of a specific diameter and circumference. A box is attached to the um, axle and a system of interlocking toothed wheels which in turn led to a ball falling into a bronze container every time a mile was passed. So it went boom. Thus, says Vitruvius, by the dropping of the balls and the noise they make, we know every mile passed over. Each day, one may ascertain by the number of balls collected in the bottom, the number of miles travelled in the day's journey. And then Vitruvius explains how the axis and toothed wheels attached to paddles can be attached on a seagoing vessel to do the same. But if your concern was more with measuring time than with distance, Archimedes could help you out here too. Now, some of Archimedes' works were translated into Arabic in the 9th century by Al-Sabi Tabitim Qura al-Harani, a mathematician, astronomer, and translator who lived in Baghdad during the great age of Baghdad science. And it was probably this Mesopotamian who compiled an Arabic book we've got, which translates as Archimedes on the construction of water clocks. Um, I can't pronounce Arabic, but that's how it's been transliterated. Kitab Archimedes fi al-Bink Amat. In which there is described this clock, which I really, really, really want. A spectacular ticking clock. It was a complex hydraulic clock with many automatically moving objects. Its main body consisted of a central storage container which supplied the water. The water went through a smaller container which ensured the stability of the water level with a conical valve on a float leading to the outflow nozzle. And the supply of the flow was regulated, turning the nozzle on a calibrated semicircular disc. And on the two columns of the facade of the clock, two rings and two little statues indicated the hours that had been covered and the hours that remained, respectively. But on each hour, this is the great bit, the pupils of the human eyes on a giant mask spookily changed colour. And a small sphere fell into another container from, automatic, from the automatic opening of a crow's beak with a loud bang better than a cuckoo clock. Simultaneously, the water fell into a volumetric container, which on the hour was automatically reversed, and two small metallic snakes popped out and slid towards two metal birds sitting on the branches of a metal tree who tweeted in terror. As well they might. Unbelievable. Archimedes' astronomical instruments. By this extraordinary scientist and engineer, um, uh, he also was completely fascinated by the movement of the stars. His father was an astronomer. Here we return to the dramatic moment of his death after Syracuse had been betrayed by friends of the Romans. Cicero mentions Archimedes briefly in his dialogue De Re Publica, and that portrays a fictional conversation taking place in 129 BCE. After the capture of Syracuse in 212, General Marcellus was said to have taken back to Rome two mechanisms, planetaria, constructed by Archimedes and used as aids in astronomy. 
and they showed the motion of the sun, the moon, and the five planets, as were then identified. Now, he wasn't the first Archimedes to design such a mechanism. Cicero said that Thales, Thales of Miletus, who I lectured on last term, had already constructed one many centuries earlier. But Archimedes' model seems to be very special and a major advance on previous models of its type. Cicero said it was a newer kind of globe. The invention of Archimedes deserves special admiration. He thought out a way to represent accurately by a single device for turning the globe, these various and divergent movements with their different rates of speed. And when, says Cicero, a man called Gallus moved the globe, it was actually true that the moon was always as many revolutions behind the sun on the bronze contrivance as would agree with the number of days it was behind in the sky. This meant that the... Um, uh, the same eclipse of the sun happened on the globe as it would actually happen. The dialogue says that Marcellus kept one of the devices as his only personal loot from Syracuse and donated the other to the Temple of Virtue in Rome. But it seems to have been moved to the Temple of Vesta, which is where the poet Ovid saw it a few decades later and wrote, There stands a globe hung by Syracusian art in the closed air, a small image of the vast vault of heaven. Earth is equally distant from the top and the bottom, brought about by its spherical shape. So this does imply an outer celestial sphere of glass with a small sphere for Earth at its centre. Now, sadly, we can't be sure exactly what Archimedes' sphere looked like because... His work, he wrote a work called On the Construction of Spheres, and it's mentioned by the scholar Pappus of Alexandria in the 4th century CE, but it hasn't survived. Let's hope there's some more Archimedes palimpsests lurking somewhere in a French cellar. But we can be sure that the beauty and intellectual achievement of Archimedes' celestial sphere provoked some figures in antiquity, both pagan and Christian, to compare it one way or another with the work of a divinity. In another text, Cicero comments that some people, they think more highly of the achievement of Archimedes in making models of the revolutions of the firmament than that of nature in creating them. Although the perfection of the original in nature surely shows a craftsmanship many times as great as does the counterfeit. But the early Christian writer Lactantius used a comparison between Archimedes' skill and God's skill to argue that the Stoics were wrong to question the Christian argument for an all-powerful creator God that rests on the universe's supposedly perfect design. This is what Lactantius said. Could Archimedes, the Sicilian, have devised from hollow brass a likeness and figure of the world in which he so arranged the sun and moon that they would affect unequal motions and those like to the celestial changes for each day, as it were, and display and exhibit not only the risings and settings of the sun and the waxings and wanings of the moon, but even the unequal courses of revolutions of the heavens. And that sphere, while it revolved, exhibited not only the approaches and the wandering of the stars as that sphere turned, could that all have happened, and yet God himself be unable to fashion and accomplish what the skill of man can simulate by imitation. 
which answers, therefore, would a stoic give if he'd seen the forms of stars painted and reproduced in that sphere? Would he say they were moved by their own purpose, or would he rather not say by the skill of the designer? So you could use Archimedes' sphere either to argue that there was no God and man was superior, or that God existed and design was perfect. And the poet Claudian wrote a whole poem on Archimedes' sphere in which he imagined Jupiter himself protesting at Archimedes' skill. When Jove looked down and saw the heavens figured in a sphere of glass, he laughed and said to the other gods, has the power of mortal effort gone so far? Is my handiwork now mimicked in a fragile globe? An old man of Syracuse has imitated on earth the laws of the heavens, the order of the nature and the ordinances of the gods. Some hidden influence within the sphere directs the various courses of the stars and actuates the lifelike mass with definite motions. A false zodiac runs through a year of its own. A toy moon waxes and wanes month by month. Now bold invention rejoices to make its own heaven revolve and sets the stars in motion by human wit. Here the feeble hand of man has proved to be nature's rival. Now scientists have always been sceptical about these reports and questioned whether there really was even in antiquity sufficient understanding of mechanics for Archimedes' sphere to have worked, especially sophisticated understanding of differential gearing. But the discovery of another ancient machine with apparently the same ability to predict eclipses has changed all that. This is not Archimedes, but it has helped to make us believe in his sphere. The bronze machine was discovered in 1900 by Greek divers investigating a large shipwreck off the coast of the tiny Aegean island of Antikythera. The ship had lain on the seabed since about 65 BCE. And in the 1970s, radiography showed that it was a complex device with at least 30 gear wheels. And in 2016, most of the texts on its surfaces were finally decoded, although we await full publication, I do with great excitement. The actual thing is in Athens Archaeological Museum. And the front of the Antikythera mechanism pointed to the location of the sun and the moon alongside the display of the phases of the moon. And it seemed to have been designed as a kind of calculator which could analyse and predict the relative positions of the heavenly bodies when past or future dates were entered into the device. Almost a computer. On the back, dials showed a 19-year cycle of lunar months, lunar and solar eclipses, and what is to believe to be a four-year cycle of human events, competitions, including the four-year cycle of the Olympic Games. <coughs> That's why they put the Archimedes Museum near Olympia. And about the size of a large shoebox, it had dials on both the front and back, and they were turned using a handle on the side. And we found 30 gears, but it's probably probable that there were many, many more. Amazing. So, that makes Archimedes' sphere far less improbable. But what about his death and legacy? Even in his own lifetime, Archimedes' intellectual powers were often described in quasi-supernatural terms. When Marcellus was forced to give up his naval blockade of Syracuse, he said to his men, 
let us stop fighting against this geometrical Briarius. Briarius was a monstrous titan with a hundred hands. He uses our ships like cups to ladle water from the sea. And with the many missiles he shoots against us all at once, outdoes even the hundred-handed monsters of myth. And Plutarch tells us that Archimedes was always concentrating so hard on mathematical and mechanical problems that he neglected to look after himself, thus getting out of a bath and running down the street with no clothes on. Under the lasting charm of some familiar and domestic siren of his own, he forgot even his food, he neglected the care of his person, and how, when he was dragged by main force, as he often was, to the place for bathing and anointing his body... He would trace geometrical figures in the ashes and draw lines with his finger in the oil with which his body was anointed, being possessed by a great delight, in very truth, a captive of the muses. But his most elegant surviving work, which you can read, called The Sand Reckoner, suggests, I think, a cheerful, lucid and friendly communicator. He would have made an ideal Gresham lecturer who's gone out of his way to make extremely complicated mathematical problems comprehensible to the non-specialist reader. He writes to Hiero's son, who's not a scientist, setting out to determine an upper bound for the number of grains of sand that could fit into the universe. For the size of the universe, he takes the estimate of Aristarchus, uh, who is in touch with a slightly older scientist who'd proposed the heliocentric model. I mean, these were incredible advances being made. People who accounted Archimedes or his findings and inventions all became obsessed with him, and not only his colleagues in Alexandria or his royal relatives in Sicily. Plutarch tells us that Marcellus was actually deeply traumatised by Archimedes' death, even though he and his Roman forces had suffered so much from the machines. And Plutarch then quotes an alternative version of Archimedes' demise. That's the coin that Martellus had uh, uh, minted to celebrate when he'd finally taken Syracuse. But this is the alternative version. While Archimedes was carrying to Marcellus some of his mathematical instruments, such as sundials and spheres and quadrants, by means of which he made the magnitude of the sun appreciable to the eye, some soldiers fell in with him and, thinking he was just carrying gold in the box, slaughtered him. Marcellus was dreadfully afflicted at his death and turned away from his slayer as from a polluted person and sought out the kindred of Archimedes and paid them honour and put up that tomb. But Archimedes' discoveries were to change the world again in the European Renaissance, when he attracted even more significant admirers like Leonardo and inspired extraordinary new intellectual leaps when his works were painstakingly translated, reconstructed and analysed, such as were then available. And in his De Motu, one of his earliest works, Galileo Galilei referred to the superhuman Archimedes, whose name I never mention without a feeling of awe. Elsewhere... Galileo calls Archimedes inimitable, peerless and divine. He considered Archimedes divine for his ingenuity in using mathematical models 
in such uh, physical sciences as theoretical mechanics and hydrostatics, and for the elegance and rigour of his mathematical demonstrations. And one historian of science, Alexandra Coyer, has shown that Galileo sought to emulate Archimedes from very early in his career. So we really do need to regard Archimedes as the true forerunner of modern physics. And Paul Lawrence Rose, in his seminal book, The Italian Renaissance of Mathematics, stresses that without what he calls the Archimedean revival, Renaissance science and mathematics would be very difficult to imagine. And in this lecture, we've seen at least two Archimedean inventions being used to experiment with systems for moving water and creating heat without causing environmental damage. He's still inspiring us, and that's not solely because the full text of the Archimedes Palimpsest is yet to be published. Perhaps the crisis facing our planet will soon lead to another equally seminal Archimedean revival, as was seen in Galileo's time. And he has inspired so many pictures. So thank you.